This is the official Sasta podcast with me, Harry Stabbings. I'm very excited for our show today as we have a launch, an incredible company and founder making its foray into the public eye for the first time. And so with that, I'm thrilled to welcome Paul Rosania, founder and CEO at Balsa, the company that recognizes that builders move the world forward. And so they're building the best second screen for builders, integrating tools you already use like Gyro, GitHub and Figma. As I said, coming out of stealth today and with their seed round led by Andrew Chen and Andreessen Horowitz and joined by former CPO at Slack, April Under. Underwood, Chapter 1's Jeff Morris Jr., and then of course the newly announced 20VC fund. Prior to founding Balsa, Paul was Senior Director of Product at Slack, and before Slack was a Group Product Manager at Twitter, where he was responsible for the home timeline, including timeline ranking. I'd also want to say a huge thank you to Madhu at Robinhood for some fantastic question suggestions today. I really do so appreciate that. But before we dive into the show today, Outgrow.co is used by Adobe, Salesforce, and Marketo to engage and educate their audience while improving their lead conversion rate. Outgrow's wide range of intuitive, no-code tools such as calculators, chatbots, assessments, and quizzes help you drive engagement and boost conversions. Outgrow's pre-optimized templates make it easy for marketers to quickly create interactive content. Find out how you can build these tools for your business at outgrow.co forward slash SAS. That's outgrow.co forward slash SAS. Podcast listeners will get a special 30-day free trial with no credit card required. Try outgrow.co today to boost your marketing. And speaking of taking advantage advantages of special opportunities there with Outgrow. Do you wish you were in some of the best performing IPOs of 2019 and 2020? With our crowd, accredited investors have access to invest directly, easily, and most importantly, early. Our crowd investors have benefited from our crowd companies IPOing like Beyond Meat or being bought by companies like Intel, Nike, Microsoft, and Oracle. Today, you can join our crowd's investment in Memic. Memic explains that their tiny robotics allow surgeons to be less invasive and safely perform gynecological surgery surgeries so women heal faster and have less scarring. Memex is a much needed innovation in the rapidly growing multi-billion dollar robotic surgery market and you can get in early on Memex and other incredible opportunities at rcrowd.com slash If you're interested in investing you need to join rcrowd. The rcrowd account is free just go to o-u-r-c-r-o-w-d.com slash s-a-a-s-t-r. But that is quite enough from me so now I'm very excited to hand over to Paul Rosania co-founder and CEO at Balsa. Good. That's perfect. Okay. I think we're warmed up. Paul, it is so great to have you on the show today. I've been so excited for this one for a long time. I would love though to start today with a little bit on you. So tell me, Paul, how did you make your way into the world of SaaS and how did you come to found Balsa most recently? Well, I've been in and out of startups my whole career and my big break came close to 10 years ago now. In 2011, I got a call from Andrew Chen to come out and work for him at a startup that he was running, which was my first time working in a very, very rigorous environment focused on user growth and experiment and that catapulted me to Twitter and a chance to run the home timeline team there. And from Twitter to Slack, where I ran the core product team, which is essentially the nuts and bolts of Slack, the parts that people use every day. And most recently, shared channels as we started to think of Slack as as much a network as it is a product. And so from there and across that experience of seeing hypergrowth across two really big companies, starting to get the sense that as companies grow, the tools that people use to build software start to dull a little bit. And yet we've got these amazing supercomputers that can do 
so much and starting to wonder, could we build better tools for builders at scale where some of the tools that we have to adopt that work for larger organizations are not as fun to use as the tools that we use that companies like Slack when we were a lot smaller. And so that was kind of the genesis for Balsa. Now, I absolutely love it as a thesis. I do want to touch on a couple of elements of the background there before we dive in. And as you mentioned the time at Twitter there and the time on the timeline itself. And I spoke to Madhu at Robinhood before this episode about <laughs> changing Twitter from a chronological list to a ranked feed, you absolute prick. Uh, no, I'm joking. <laughs> so my question to you is, how did you think about it? I mean, it's a massive product decision. How did you think about this product decision? And what was that process? I think my stock line post-2016 is, forgive us, we knew not what we were doing at the time. But I think even in today's world, you could look back and make a similar decision. We knew at the time that the vast majority of users were seeing way, way, way less than 10% of their timeline. And if you think about the Twitter timeline prior to ranking, the tweets that are coming through are essentially random in quality. So we had this vague intuition that there are going to be some things that you're going to miss that are going to be better than the things you saw. In fact, you're missing more than 90%. So you're probably missing a lot of really interesting stuff that's going on in the world. So the core intuition was really, really basic. It was just, can we take some of that stuff you're missing and swap it in for some of the stuff you're seeing that might not be as interesting? Can I ask the question, when it's such a big product decision, like when you apply that now to decision-making and around product in particular, are there takeaways from that experience that you take with you now, be it made decisions faster, earlier, be it a specific kind of process around the decision-making itself? Were there lessons from it? Yeah, at a really big takeaway that's external and customer-facing and another big takeaway that was internal. So the external one is the metrics bore out that we had made the right decision here. On the contrary, there was a big backlash around the decision from customers. And the main takeaway that I had from that was something we had actually debated a lot internally. It's how much control to give to the people who were going to start seeing this ranked timeline. And there was one line of thinking that simpler was better. Most people don't want to customize their software. It's faster to get this to market and iterate on it and make it great if we skip over a lot of those controls. And then something that I had a hunch about, but we didn't go down this path, and I learned a lot more about at Slack, was the value that comes from giving people the sense that they're in control of the tools that they are using ends up mattering quite a bit. And so that was a big takeaway that I had just from observing the backlash that what I took away was essentially people felt like they were in control and they understood why you were making the change that you were making and had some levers to pull to kind of customize it for themselves. I think that change would have been tolerated a little bit more than it was. And then the internal observation is change is just as hard within a company as it is for the customers who are affected. And especially when there's a polarizing change, everybody shows up to work wanting to do right by the people who are using your software all day. And there's a lot that goes into managing the internal culture within an organization when you're going through a big change. And that was a big learning experience for me as well. So if that's the time at Twitter, if I've just summarized you know, many years of work into about three minutes, I'm so sorry. <laughs> uh, then I do want to touch on, on Slack itself, you know, close to five years there. What are the biggest takeaways from your time really seeing the hyper growth at Slack? And how do you think, I guess, it impacted your operating mindset today with Balsa? So it was quite a leap. Twitter was a very data-driven company. And one of the things that appealed to me most about going to Slack, and Slack was much smaller at the time, I think Twitter was 4,000 people and Slack was about 250. I really wanted a chance to work directly with Stuart in a very vision-driven organization in contrast to that more data-driven culture that I felt like I had grown to be very comfortable in, to really challenge myself to do something very different. And I felt at the time, and I still believe, that Stuart is one of the great product minds of our time. And a lot of what I learned and took away had to do with just really believing in yourself and your ability to take a audience that you care a lot about and know a thing or two about and just focus on the pure experience of building software for that audience, watching them use it, using it yourself with them in mind, and just refining it and how quickly you can improve the experience and add to the experience and how often those improvements end up landing successfully if
if you really, really focus on really deeply understanding an audience as opposed to treating everything totally scientifically and as a matter of analysis, which I think I'm somewhere in between. I really do love pouring over the data. And so I think for Balsa, it will be a mix of data-driven and vision-driven. But it was just incredibly intoxicating being able to sit with Stuart with a customer problem, sketch solutions on a whiteboard, and sometimes see those solutions reach customers within, if not days, then certainly like a couple weeks at most. I'm sure it was pretty amazing to work with Stuart. I do want to kind of take a shift though and talk about kind of the landscape we're in today and really recognizing the challenging times, but also not being kind of morose and dull and lucky I've got such a <laughs> chance to get us through that. But you speak to many CEOs today and they all say the same thing with the shift to fully remote, no bloody idea what's going on in my organization. Tell me, Paul, what can we do to cope with this and how would you advise them? First of all, what we're going through is really hard and unprecedented. And so I think like taking a step back and just acknowledging that it's a difficult time is really important to gain a little bit of perspective. Keeping track of work within organizations, especially under hypergrowth or above a certain size, is hard normally. And the shift to remote, especially so suddenly, makes it excruciating because all of the hallway conversations that you realize that you relied on to keep abreast of changes kind of evaporate overnight. So I think the big thing that I think a lot about is that chaos can cause you to really need to feel some pressure to speed up and get organized. But really more than anything, I think slowing down a little bit, spending a little bit more time writing things down and using long form writing or some equivalent, more thought out and edited way of communicating is actually what's needed in a time when it's hard for people to communicate. And so I think we'll see more of that. And I think as people gain a little bit of time in their really busy days right now to do some of that, they will find that over time, they'll need fewer meetings and less check-ins to start to be a little bit more aware of what's going on in these suddenly totally distributed companies. And maybe start to see more of that productivity gain in the long run that remote work evangelists have been talking about for a long time. Can I ask, in what ways do you think the writing is so powerful? And like, what I mean by that is like, what are the tangible things that you would write around? Is it like a weekly update Mm. to the whole team? Is it product decisions? Is it hiring decisions? Where can leaders proactively use writing to kind of unify the team? You could apply it for sure in all of those ways. The way that I think writing is so powerful right now, especially is I think great leaders understand how to get a fully formed thought from someone kind of conversationally that you ask someone a question in a meeting, they give you an answer that comes from some intuition, and then they're really good at pulling this thread to get that intuition to spill out into a concrete argument in favor of doing something. And writing is that same journey, but instead of doing that via dialogue, the process of writing kind of forces you to spot the problems in your reasoning. And so that's why I think writing is so important. It's a way for people without needing to speak face-to-face to be able to tighten their arguments and really come to a position on something. Now, actually, having spoken so much about writing, like for weekly updates, I really like Loom or something where you're seeing a face because I think that human connection is really important. Where I think about writing is stuff like any sort of decision that's being made that's going to shape the business. So product strategy decisions, vision documents. If you're hiring right now, I think it's extra important to have the hiring criteria all the way down to specific things you're looking for for a candidate or red flags documented so that everyone is super tightly aligned because you're not getting as much of that by bumping into someone in the hallway outside the interview room going, hey, can you ask about this thing because I didn't get to it? Getting that stuff really locked down and agreed to makes a big difference when people aren't in that normal day-to-day contact that they're used to. Totally. And I think you miss a lot from not having those kind of hallway discussions. From that kind of human perspective, speaking of the hallway discussions, people are struggling as well as organizations, obviously, but they're also super willing and keen to try new things to improve how they work. How do you think, and this is quite a specific one actually to just dive into, but how do you think about effective product marketing in a COVID world where employee appetite is actually pretty high to try new tools? Well, I think the thing that we keep coming back to in a lot of our conversations at Balsa is we're running into is people are very curious for ways to help with this new world 
world that we're in, but they have much less mental energy than they've ever had to actually engage in those changes that they're considering. And so I think, you know, I'm a product person, so I naturally gravitate towards some of the more product-led marketing solutions, but anything you can do to simplify the experience of just kind of testing the water with some kind of change. You know, if you have a great product and the promise that you're making to someone really is just a matter of getting them onboarded and they will actually see a little bit more productivity in their workday, I think everyone craves that right now. But trying to make that as lightweight as possible, either through simplifying your onboarding and doing more of a product-led marketing approach that's focused entirely on getting people to value super quickly, or by tuning your marketing message to be very concrete and productive, I think some of the more aspirational and vague messages are a little bit less likely to land right now just because people are very short-term focused on kind of finding ways to cope with this radical shift in the short run. A couple of things that I just have to ask, they're not in the schedule. How important do you think time to value is? I'm totally with you on the importance of kind of simplicity in products, but then also sometimes, you know, beauty comes over time in the product itself. How do you think about time to value as an imperative for you? I speak a lot in metaphors. So you have to tell me if this lands or not, but I think right now time to value matters a great deal, but I also agree that you can't build a company just on the veneer of value that comes from that first interaction. The metaphor that came to mind for me is thinking about a nicer meal at a fancy restaurant and they want to make sure that you're comfortable and you're not starving while they prepare something from scratch that takes a long time. Bringing out something in your product a little bit the way a chef might bring out and a mousse-bouche or like some kind of little tasting thing to just prove that you're serious, that there is going to be value there and that your product is built in a really high quality and focused and thoughtful way to keep people sated while they can discover that value. It's kind of how I would think about it. So I actually would stay very long-term focused in terms of building products that have deep, deep sustaining value because people want real change in this very different environment. But I think you just have to marry that with something that somebody can look at right away and go, oh, that's cool. That's different. That's fresh. And I hope to see more of that over time. I don't think people have the patience today to have that first wow moment come a little bit later than they might have had the patience for a year ago. Terrible metaphor. Awful. (laughs) I thought it was brilliant, actually. I think the question is, and this should be the title of the show, what is your amuse-bouche? Because I think that's uh, (laughs) it. Is it enticing enough to make people see the beauty that kind of lies thereafter? I think the second question I was asking, it really kind of ties back to the product simplicity, which is like, how do you think about the rise of superhuman style onboardings? Mm. Apparently, it means there's kind of enough complexity that it kind of needs it. How do you feel about it from your product standpoint? I was in a conversation the other day where people were wondering if that's overwrought. I think Superhuman has been so successful with it that maybe it's being applied in places where it's not necessary. But I will tell you, especially from my experience at Twitter, the power of sitting down with someone and asking them what they're interested in and helping them set up their home timeline was just, I mean, if we could do that for all of the hundreds of millions of people who were trying Twitter back when I was working there, I think we could have had a big impact on the growth curve for the company. So I really think that there's no substitute for an expert in a tool helping someone get oriented. Now, that said, it's not an excuse for having a product that's hard to adopt. And something like Superhuman, where it's entirely keyboard-driven and it's very focused on power user productivity, having someone teach you the ropes is a bit like having someone teach you like an editor like Vim or Emacs from the generation where just nothing is obvious on the surface, but you can be intensely productive once you've mastered it. And I don't think most products, that's their core value prop. And so I'd be wary of applying this as a panacea in situations where the product is actually something that is intended to be adopted by people who might not want to memorize all of the shortcuts and might not want to do a ton of customization just to get that initial value. Totally get you. I think, you know, it's got its place in them a lot of ways. I think one challenging thing is when you look at like the scale of organizations and you think about change,
change management with new tools. Change management is always kind of a big thing that I think about. How do you think about effective change management, maybe especially with Balser today and moving forward? So to me, it comes back to value and it comes back to why. And I think what you're trying to do is you're trying to get a customer to slow down in order to speed up. So that argument needs to have some form of an ROI-based justification where we're saying basically you're going to change from product A to product B or from workflow A to workflow B. Workflow B is going to be 10, 15, 20% more efficient or productive for you, but there's going to be some amount of time where you're slowing down. And so I think you need to come back to all of the same tactics you would use in a sales conversation in general, which is just to say, rather than spending money and then getting your money back, you're spending your time and then getting your time back. I totally get it in terms of kind of that messaging. I think what it brings into question for me is as a product leader within big orgs and then now obviously building your own org, what do you think in terms of the ideal relationship between product and marketing? And how would that play out to you in an ideal world? I have a strong opinion about this. I think that storytelling is a bit of a lost art in software development. And we're starting to rediscover it. And you're seeing companies that lead with the story and then build product around that. Building software has been such a hard thing for us to figure out how to do in a predictable and reliable way that I think some of the traditional marketing tools around having a schedule and having the thing that you're selling line up on a release cadence with that schedule were we kind of had to throw them away because as an industry, it was hard to reliably have the product ready for the marketing events. But we're getting a little bit better about building software in an agile way, which means there's always component parts that are ready to go out to customers. And so I think the long answer to your question is, I want to sit down with marketing and talk about what we think are narrative arcs that will land with customers right now. Like Obviously, a lot of companies are leaning into remote work. So let's take that as an example. What are the contributions that we can make to the sudden shift to remote work, to making that a more pleasant experience for this entire workforce in the, globally that's gone through this? What are the things our product can do? And can we shape the product options ahead of us with the marketing narratives that we think will land and kind of pace them out? And in organizations that I think do this well, you need to leave some slop because building software is a little bit unpredictable. But I think in most organizations, you can maybe budget 25 to 50% of your forward progress on engineering toward lining up with these narratives and still have tons of room for the things that happen in engineering. Got you. No, I totally agree with you in terms of that relationship. So I'm pleased to hear it. I often see challenging relationships between product and marketing. You mentioned kind of our company there, and I do want to kind of move with a slight start towards kind of more balance today. And it's like when you look at those trying to innovate in serving newly remotely teams, every VC, especially that I have on the show, has been kind of looking for the new platform shift for years. And you look at the mm. likes of like Jira and GitHub, as embedded as they are, you've said to me before, the opportunity isn't actually in competing with them, but it's in building on top of them. So what did you mean by this building on top of these kind of pretty embedded incumbent structures? So let's imagine I went to you as a CTO and my pitch to you was the problem that you're facing, the main productivity issue that you're facing is actually the design of the electrical sockets in your building. You would probably think I had totally lost my mind and it would be a very short conversation. So to me, I think that some of these productivity tools that people love to hate, like Jira, they're misunderstanding that all of these systems, in order to be deployed ubiquitously and have value in every organization, they're going to pick up some cruft and some flaws along the way. And that's actually a sign that they've reached a stage of maturity. Organizations are complex. Their needs are complex. The domain that a tool like Jira or GitHub needs to fit into is complex. And so the resulting tool is going to be, in a sense, messier than the tools that maybe came before when the category was not as developed or the company that was using the tool was smaller. And so when we were founding Balsa, we thought a lot about this. And my point of view is, I think we'll see another layer in the software stack where some tools like like Jira and GitHub become fundamental infrastructure, kind of like the electrical outlets or the water pipes. And the question isn't, what version of the water pipes do you want to have in your office building? It's, what are you doing with all of this infrastructure that you're paying for? And how are you leveraging it to gain more productivity? Can I ask two things? One is like the 
obvious one, which is like dependency risk. And, you know, if you're built on top, you're obviously dependent on the powers that be within those incumbent structures. Let's start with that. How do you think about that dependency risk? So especially coming from Twitter, where lots of people were building Twitter clients on top of the Twitter API and we were shutting them down. This is something that we thought about. So it's a little bit different in enterprise SaaS, right? Incentives are much more aligned. We're building software in Balsa's case, integrating into these tools is we're doing it in order to further increase the productivity of the end user as another accelerant on top of the original accelerant that comes from adopting things like source control and issue tracking. And so we're still delivering on the same value and we're not actually replacing the value created by those tools. The first thing is we're selling it with the exact same message alongside these tools. And the people who are buying our software are also buying this other software. All of the relationships are symmetrical. And then the software that we are integrating with is an essential part of our tool is the existence of these other tools for us to tap into. So if you're running one of these businesses, we're just further enhancing the value that you're creating for your target audience. And so I think even if you look at the other players in the space, unseating us or cutting us off would only be harmful to the customer. And our existence doesn't really affect their ability to sell to that customer. Can I ask a big question that I have as an investor is like, okay, totally get you in terms of building on top and kind of augmenting the experience for that consumer. The question that I have is like, is that a feature? It's always the question that investors ask, like, is it a product Mm. or is it a feature? How do you think about that product versus feature discussion when you're building on top of core infrastructure? Well, so you have to do something that couldn't just be on the whiteboard at the company that you're building on top of, right? So I think for us, the things that make us feel confident that building on top of these tools in some way, and maybe just to back up for a second, like we're talking about building on top of multiple tools and tying them together a bit more. And so when you start to think about mapping across and kind of building a meta layer across all these productivity tools that people use to get work done and giving an end user a single screen experience that encapsulates all of that, that starts to be something that none of the individual players could do well. It's kind of like how no matter who your bank is, that bank kind of wants to be mint.com, but the experience is never really right. And part of that is because none of those institutions really is the right place to put the center picture for your personal finances that kind of wants to live on its own somewhere where the company that's building it is totally focused on doing that job really well. And so we have a similar thesis here. And I guess to broaden that, I would just say, I think making one product better is a dangerous game. Trying to make a bunch of products that people use fit together, weave more tightly together in a way that helps you get work done is something that is best done by an independent company. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think it also diversifies risk in many ways in terms of dependency there. So I totally agree there. In terms of kind of brilliant things that you've said, you've said many wonderful things to me. Uh, <laughs> You said one thing, and it's like, you know, when we think about builders within these companies, the builders are, check this out, the new pro athletes. I mean, my word, I wish that was the case because then I would have incredible endorsement deals. But <laughs> tell me, like, what did you mean by the new pro athletes? And I should credit Jeff Morris Jr. here because it was on a call with him when we were raising money that I think he said the same thing to me. I know no thought is original, but credit where credit's due on that one. So what did I mean by that? One thing that I think is sometimes lost when we look at these big logos and is we lose sight of the people that power these organizations, it feels with computers sometimes like the machines somehow made the software that we use. But behind that, just like 100 years ago when we were making things with our hands, is people typing on keyboards, solving really hard technical challenges, keeping sites up under scaling load. There's just a ton of sweat equity that goes into building software. And just broadening out to builders in general, like everything that we have in this world that's human-made was made with the ingenuity and expertise and problem-solving ability of this incredibly important class 
class of people in the world. And what makes me think of pro athletes is like that job, you can't really manage that job or schedule an hour for someone to have ingenuity. That's something that just manifests when you sit someone down with a team and a bunch of laptops for days and days working on hard problems. And to me, that feels much more like athletes training and being out on the ball field together than something that is more tightly managed. Like I think sometimes people picture when they picture an office full of cubicles or something like that. Can I ask, with that change in mind then, I guess, like how does the org change itself in terms of structure and like support system to accommodate these athletes? Well, I think you'll see, and in some companies, you're already seeing more of a coach support model where managers view their jobs as supporting and enabling and unblocking the people who are doing the hard work. And to draw another parallel here, in the same way that the coach's job is to get the team to execute the plays and to believe in their ability and to really go out there and win, I think similarly, really excellent product managers, engineering managers, all the way up to like CTOs and CEOs, they understand that training their team and then managing their psyche while they're in this incredibly competitive industry that we're in is the vast majority of the value that's created is a lot of the CEOs that I know and think about like Stuart talking about like what his greatest job was is telling the story that gets everyone pointed in the same direction. And I think that's very similar to the job that you expect of a coach on the sideline in a big game. Totally, it is. I think that's absolutely a comparable. Last one is like, with like not rising prominence, but with the athlete style metaphor for kind of the builders themselves, how do you think about not ruining morale in other functions within organizations, not creating a preferred sure. child almost? Maybe this is a bit counterintuitive, but I think that starts with honesty. If you run a ball club, everyone knows the athletes are the people that everyone's coming to see, and it's their performance that matters to the fans. And you know, without the fans, you don't have the club. So I think really being honest and speaking truthfully to your company and making sure that everyone's aligned on where the value is getting created. If you're a software company, you're building a tool that people are using. And so if that tool is not being built, you don't have a business. One of my mentors, April Underwood, her framework was you build a product and that product enables you to build a company. You can build all of the functions that you need to run a company around that initial product success. And then the success of the product and the success of the company building effort enables you to build an enduring business where you have the revenue to enable that company to continue existing over time. And so I think you can get people behind that. Thinking about the back office, I mean, sports clubs nowadays have enormous back offices. And I bet if you were to ask people who are doing finance projections or who are thinking about facility renovation or things like that, they know kind of intuitively how to tie their work back to that cycle. And they know that without their hard work, the club wouldn't be the success that it is. That team is the kernel, but they need the enormous stadium in order to house all the fans. And the fans bring the revenue that enables the team to pay the players. And so I think great leaders know how to weave that narrative together so that everybody understands the contribution that they're making. But they're also honest about where that initial flywheel comes from and that all of the work is kind of in service of supporting that. And I think people can get behind that honesty. Totally with you. And I think people will do. And I like that analogy again. God, you're the master of metaphors. <laughs> I do want to finish it on my favorite, which is a quick fire round. So I say a short statement, Paul, and then you give me your immediate thoughts in 60 seconds or less. Are you ready to rock and roll? Sure. So what's the biggest challenge of your role with Bolsa today? Keeping us anchored in our long-term vision while we're so focused on executing, which with five people, we're just entirely focused on just building the thing right in front of us. And I think it can be easy to lose sight of the long-term goal if you're not constantly reminding yourself what it is. Totally. No, I agree with that. Tell me, what's the hardest role to hire for today? As you think about expanding the team, what's that role that's just a nightmare to hire for? You mentioned the relationship between product and marketing before. And I got to say, like, it takes a very special marketer coming over, not necessarily having a background in engineering and being able to advocate for some of that story-based development and that marketing and product relationship in an effective way. So I would definitely say like getting the right marketing DNA into our company is something I worry about a lot. Yeah, it's a commonality actually a lot of founders tell me on the show. So uh, you're not alone in that at least. <laughs> tell me, what angel investor has been most impactful to you and to Balsa? 
I'm going to cheat here if that's okay. I mentioned April before, and the reason it's cheating, I think, to cite April Underwood is so much of the reason why she's been an amazing investor is also that she was my coach, mentor, manager at Slack for a little over three years at a critical point in my career. And I think I wouldn't be ready to start the company if it wasn't for her feedback and development over those years. So I credit her a great deal with being where I am. And she's been super helpful since, but most of our relationship does predate investing. So I hope that still counts. Cool. Let me just run through what just happened. I just asked you the most impactful angel investor to you from me. And you said someone else. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> you, you were perfectly had up to say me and you fucked it up. I came into this assuming that those were my opportunities to get good editing done on the recording. So oh, totally. I'm taking that, I'm taking that risk. That was why I, I thoroughly agree. Yeah. I mean, people, I'm the first interviewee not to cite you in the answer to that question. Pretty much. Yes. Yeah. There's a very definitive reason why it's there. But uh, listen, I'm sure April is far more impactful than me on all the important things. I'm just here to rip the shit out of you. Anyway, I do want to ask, tell me, what would you most like to change about the world of SaaS? It feels to me like what I've seen with the rise of Slack and bottom-up SaaS is, I think, as an end user in an organization, people have never been more empowered to try new tools. But CEOs, CIOs, CTOs are getting extremely frustrated with tool proliferation and spend proliferation. We're in a time when I think the economy is a little bit unpredictable and people are worried about costs. And so you're seeing, at the same time, a bit more of a focus on central control and tamping down on people testing out whatever tool that they want. And I'd love to see a little bit more harmonization where CIOs are still empowered to say, we're going to use a tool like Jira or GitHub or Workday or something like that. And instead of people groaning about the end user experience not being as great as the latest hot startup that was designed from the ground up with end users in mind, to say, okay, great. And we're going to pair it with this other tool that's going to help make this thing work very effectively for the people who are using it day in and day out in some specific way. So I think there's a way to allow IT decision makers to buy software and leverage the major investments that they want to make and still deliver a great experience for end users. So that's the big change I would like to make because right now it feels like you have to choose one or the other. Tell me, what moment in your life has changed the way you think, Paul? I had an appendectomy when I was probably right around 30. And what was striking to me about that was I would be dead. 200 or 300 years ago, I would be dead. And the only reason I'm not dead is because somebody figured out that under the right conditions, you could just cut someone open and take out the thing that's causing the pain and they would live. And so I love playing with Legos as a kid. I love building things in general. You could probably have put me on any team building any kind of software and I would be thrilled. But that experience really, I think, opened my eyes to the very profound impact that fundamental research human curiosity and human problem-solving ability, like what we can achieve. And a, an appendectomy, I think nowadays is considered a pretty simple operation, but like a critical life-saving one. And I think about that a lot, about the ways that the world is different because people went and studied these things and learned a lot about how the world works. I love that. I actually had mine out when I was like 14, 15, and yes. I didn't speak on it with such a wise hindsight. So thank you for giving me a new perspective on the world and my appendix. <laughs> <laughs> something I ever thought I'd be saying in a podcast interview. But uh, I want to finish, Paul, on uh, probably the most important of all. What do the next five years hold for you and for Balsa? Paint that exciting picture for us. Balsa is a very young company. It was just founded at the beginning of this year. And I have a young family also. And my leadership style as a product leader and now as a CEO has generally been to nurture teams toward independence and to really do everything I can to infuse the thing that I think we need to do and then let people go and do that in the way they see fit to do in their best judgment. And I think there's a lot of parallels there with having 
having some small kids in the home who I think they're trying to figure out how to engage in this world that we live in. So I see a lot of those parallels and I'm eager to watch both the company and my family kind of grow up. For Balsa in particular, I also see us bringing a ton of joy back to the experience of building. I talked a lot about builders, I think, in this episode. And if I'm allowed something specifically for Balsa, that thing would just be, I think a lot of people get into building software because they just really enjoy the act of creation of things that they picture in their mind's eye. And if we can contribute to bringing some of that joy to building in some small way, I think I'll feel very fulfilled with our choice of pursuits. Cool. As I said, I wanted to do this since you started the company. And so I'm sure you let me convince you to come on and let me do this. So thank you so much for joining me. And this has been so much fun. Great. Thank you so much, Harry. Thanks for having me. So great to have Paul on the show there and such exciting times ahead for Balser. And if you'd like to see more from me, you can find me on Instagram at hstebbings1996 with two Bs. I always love to see you there. However, before we leave you today, Outgrow.co is used by Adobe, Salesforce, and Marketo to engage and educate their audience while improving their lead conversion rates. Outgrow's wide range of intuitive, no-code tools such as calculators, chatbots, assessments, and quizzes help you drive engagement and boost conversions. Outgrow's pre-optimized templates make it easy for marketers to quickly create interactive content. Find out how you can build these tools for your business at outgrow.co forward slash SAS. That's outgrow.co forward slash SAS. Podcast listeners will get a special 30-day free trial with no credit card required. Try outgrow.co today to boost your marketing. And speaking of taking advantages of special opportunities there with Outgrow, do you wish you were in some of the best performing IPOs of 2019 and 2020? With our crowd, accredited investors have access to invest directly, easily, and most importantly, Importantly, early. Our crowd investors have benefited from our crowd companies IPOing like Beyond Meat or being bought by companies like Intel, Nike, Microsoft, and Oracle. Today, you can join our crowd's investment in Memic. Memic explains that their tiny robotics allow surgeons to be less invasive and safely perform gynecological surgeries so women heal faster and have less scarring. Memix is a much needed innovation in the rapidly growing multi billion dollar robotic surgery market, and you can get in early on Memic and other incredible opportunities at our crowd.com slash saster if you're interested in investing you need to join our crowd the our crowd account is free just go to o-u-r-c-r-o-w-d.com slash s-a-a-s-t-r as always i so appreciate all your support and i can't wait to bring you another fantastic episode next week